0: um.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest, Josh Fox, didn't set out to be an Oscar-nominated documentary filmmaker. His family happens to own a house in Milanville, Pennsylvania, in the upper Delaware Valley. He tells about what happened there
3: in his film. The house was built in 1972 when I was born. My parents and their hippie friends built it, and my family and my brothers and sisters and I... Grew pretty much the same way I did, little by little. There's a stream that runs down the property, connects to the Delaware River. I've been learning more and more about how water is all connected.
2: That house happens to sit above a gigantic deposit of sedimentary rock known as the Marcellus Shale. In that shale are tiny bubbles of natural gas, and one day, a natural gas company offered Josh's family a lot of money in exchange for drilling
3: rights. I could lease my land to this company, and I would receive a signing bonus of $4,750 an acre. Having 19.5 acres, that was nearly $100,000 right there in my hand. Could it be that easy?
2: Josh Fox's film, Africa, Gasland, is about the dangers of hydraulic fracturing, also known as fracking, a process of extracting natural gas from rock using pressure, water, sand, and chemicals. The environmental impacts of fracking can include contamination of groundwater, depletion of freshwater, and risks to air quality, all of which have long-term effects on human health. Gasland introduces us to people whose daily lives have been impacted by fracking. People like Pat Farnelli, who says there were days when four of her kids were out sick from school. Farnelli takes a stand for her community of Dimmock, Pennsylvania, and the pressures put on it by companies like Cabot Oil and Gas.
1: Everywhere there's a gap in the trees, there's a well. There's like 10. <laughs> Sometimes it, it bubbles and hisses when it comes out. I highly recommend you that want you do. You not drink it? I won't drink it. When Cabot and them came in to get the water and they were telling me it was okay to drink, I said, well, here, go ahead and drink it. And they wouldn't drink it.
2: In the interest of full disclosure, I've met Josh Fox before, and I'm a supporter of the anti-fracking movement. We've appeared on panels together. In his first film, Gasland, Fox explored the long-term damage posed by fracking. In Gasland Part 2, he details the fracking industry's attempts to undermine the growing anti-fracking movement. Josh Fox is one of the most prominent public critics of fracking though his background may come as a bit of a surprise.
3: I had founded a company in 1996 in Thailand called the International Wow Company. I was taken there for an avant-garde theater festival right after I graduated college and then split with this American company and I developed this relationship with actors in Thailand that I was fascinated with and we made a play and that play ended up touring all over the country. And I said, let's keep this going. and We'll develop international exchange between artists from all these different countries. And it actually worked. I was doing projects, working with actors, learning about their lives in different countries. And, and I did a lot of work in Southeast Asia and in Japan and India and Indonesia, Germany, France. And I was making new plays based on people's lives. So in a way, it was a documentary type of undertaking. Where did you grow up? In Pennsylvania and then later in New York City. So I have Are you your family
2: in the business, your mother and father, you No.
3: Um, my father is child of Holocaust survivors, um, went to city college when it was free, so did my mom. Um, what do you do? They're both shrinks. <laughs> <laughs> of
2: course they are of course um, they are in
3: different ways my dad deals with developmental psychology for, for kids and my mother does had a private practice and, and then started to, to work with um, of
2: course you're spending your life pulling the covers on other people because your parents I, were shrinks
3: well um, and they're you know, both crazy. Um, so, but lovely, they're wonderful. So. One, yeah, well, wonderful, intellectual, caring people who built this house in the year that I was born.
2: What was their connection to that area?
3: You know, at some point in time in the past, my dad was introduced to that area because he's a folk singer, and his heroes were Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and Dave Van Ronk. You know, he was playing. I think the this sort of Jewish summer camp. Circuit, <laughs> and my mother seriously. There are no, pictures of him, you know, and there are all those summer camps right there. So he knew the area. My mother uh is the, the flip side from an Italian immigrant family. She was born in New York City. My dad was born in Kazakhstan when the, his family was fleeing Poland and fleeing the Nazis, and he was sort of born on the road. Eventually, landed in Pittsburgh, and then moved from Pittsburgh to I think the Bronx. Do you have any siblings? So I have. Two younger siblings, my brother Alex, who lives in Los Angeles, and my sister Oriana, who lives in London. Are either so of them
2: in the business of all?
3: My, my brother's an actor. He's a wonderful actor. And my sister is a visual artist and painter and filmmaker who does the, these incredible um, pieces, film pieces about her life and about the history of feminist art. And so... Yeah, we, we're, we all have a chip on our shoulder, I think, because we had—I won't go into it so specifically, but we did have a rough time during childhood because the family did break apart and things happened. But the, mm-hmm. the, the house um, has been really the only consistent home for my whole life, and I always thought of it as sort of my twin because it was kind of born at the same time. And every time I, I knew I had a brother or sister, they would add another room, and it was to sort of make it up as you go along. Where did you go to high thing. school? I went to high school— Actually, right down the block from here, where um,
2: Columbia Prep. During that time that you were in high school, you were at Columbia Prep. Was it theater and film and media and things that interested well, you? I were you had, like then?
3: I had been in public school and I was doing really poorly. I was getting into fights every day and kind of failing. And my family was at a really rough moment when my my parents had broken up and everybody was kind of losing their minds. I was in a I was in a public school called Wagner Junior High School where there was two thousand kids and they were all between 7th and 8th and 9th grades. There was the option there to go to this private school and when I showed up there, I was like, well, what happens here? You know, I was kind of amazed that there were actually teachers who were caring and wanted to educate me and I ate it up like crazy. I, I took more history classes than any person in, in that school had ever taken. I became very, very active in, in learning about the world. And that was an amazing, lucky thing to have happen, the education that I received there. And then college, you went to Columbia? No, I went to Oberlin College in, right. o, in Oberlin, Ohio, for two years. Right. And I couldn't stand the weather. I mean, it's just gray. What did you, what did <laughs> you, what did you study? Uh, theater. I went for theater, um, and I I I, spent—I've always had this uh, competing interest in theater and music. Um, I played drums in a band that was in CBGBs, um, played Scott in New York City, and I always didn't know if I was going to do music or I was going to do theater. At that time, I was acting. So I went to Oberlin. Uh, My stepbrother, who was a year ahead of me in school, had also gone to Oberlin. I visited him for a weekend, and I just saw this incredible place, and I, I fell in love with it. But then realized, you know, that the sun doesn't come out in northeast Ohio between October and May. I was done with book learning for a while. I left to do something else. I wanted to be in the theater. And to me, the theater was always the place where you could explore the ideas of justice. I mean, there's really two kinds of plays. There's comedy, and they're about love, and there's drama, and that's about justice. And specifically, what I learned was that, you know, there is no great play that isn't about specifically the politics of its time. From Macbeth to Death of a Salesman, they're always concerned with this particular political situation at that moment, if you go back and research them. So to me... There was something in working in drama that was always relevant about this, whatever was happening right now. And it would be very, very frustrated going to the theater seeing things that weren't relevant, seeing things that weren't about um, the collision of the human experience and the human spirit with the moment right now. Like I, it felt like in the theater right now. So to be what kinds right of things now.
2: did you do initially that, that spoke to that?
3: Well, I did a play called Hurley Burly by David right, right, Rabe. Right, right, right. This was 1992. It was the, first, was the second play I ever directed. The first one was Glass Menagerie um, by Tennessee Williams. And we actually ended up, weirdly enough, premiering it on the same night as the L.A. riots started. And we had been inhabiting this sort of depraved Los Angeles world in Ohio, And then all of a sudden L.A. was everywhere on the news and it was a moment in time when we were performing this play and all these, it was sold out like this and everybody came in and we were seeing all these incredibly violent images and it wasn't that it had anything to do with the L.A. riots but it was this feeling that you got that you could commune with some sensibility of culture that was in the air and I think that made me aware of the power of what can happen when everyone's in one room together watching something that is reflective of what's happening right now. And then when did you think that picking up a camera and making a film
2: was the next inevitable step for you?
3: Well, in the theater, the thing just goes away. So I would obsessively videotape all my plays and try to do it in a way that you could actually watch it. But I disagree with you. I don't think it
2: necessarily goes away.
3: Well, no, it never goes away.
2: Well, it, in the sense that I, I have people who their memories of some of the theater they've yeah. seen are greater than the films they've seen.
3: Well, I think that the impact is less wide, but it's more deep. Right. It's, it's not memorialized, but, it's, it's, yeah. but the people do remember well, when you have to apply for grants to make a living, <laughs> um, you got to tape your plays. Done. So I okay. got really fascinated with how this could work with cameras, and I did uh, uh, have a video camera. And a friend of mine named Morgan Janes, who was Joe Papp's literary advisor for 10 years at the public theater, she saw me up there and she goes, Do you ever think about making a movie? And I said, um, yeah, but not really. It's too complicated. Like, you have to plan everything. I don't like planning things. It's difficult. I don't like planning every shot. Like, if I'm making a play, I'm in the room with new people. you got to be a
2: certain kind of person to do that job.
3: Well... There are other ways to make movies, but I didn't know that they existed. You know, John Cassavetes used to just get his actors together with a script, and then they would go, and then they would improvise, and they would cut, and they would improvise. There, was way, there are other ways. Mike Lee does the same thing, that there's an improvisational backdrop to their working process. But then she said, well, why don't you propose something to Jim McKay, who's a friend of mine, who's a great filmmaker, and his partner, Michael Stipe. And I proposed to make a film of a play that I had directed. So about you knew them from where? I didn't know them. She knew them. How old were you then? That was when um, I was 33 or something like mm-hmm. that, um, 32. Uh, so, uh, I guess so it was pretty much theater acting up until then and music. I, well, I was the director. I was, I, I, directing, I, I acting. Stopped, I stopped acting altogether. Oh, you stopped acting. You just got, directing theater only. Actors are very particular people who mm-hmm. never stop being on fire, if, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to see and de- develop a vision of some kind of a work. Right. So I developed a film called Memorial Day. Because I had this insane experience on a Memorial Day weekend in Ocean City, Maryland. Ocean City, Maryland being like a beach town where everyone just goes mad on this spring break or Memorial Day weekend. And I was there Memorial Day weekend 2004, four weeks after the Abu Ghraib pictures came out in the media. And this is a holiday that's supposed to be about the victims of war, the costs of war, our soldiers, and also the— honor. but I'm sitting here watching barbecues and, you know, wet T-shirt contests and people vomiting on the beach and yeah. weird, aggra- yeah. incredibly aggressive. This is, what the, this is what the troops died for. I was just in this weird place of being so obsessed with these photographs of sexualized torture for the camera and then watching this Girls Gone Wild thing happening in Ocean City where a minute anyone whipped out a camera, they would do the most lewd and disgusting thing that they possibly could. And I thought, well, what, this is a weird conversation happening. Nobody here is actually talking about the war. Nobody's talking about the soldiers. They're just celebrating the beginning of summer. Then I found out that the folks who were—the soldiers who were in Abu Ghraib— had gone to virginia beach the weekend before they shipped out had done all the same photographs of just to their friends they'd pulled their pants down they took pictures of people naked while they were passed out and then it was interesting because i thought well what we've done is we've just exported fraternity hazing to this prison in iraq and not bothered to tell the iraqis that this is the what what right. we're doing and we're hazing them right. and i felt like we were in a moment of extraordinary Disc, being disconnected yeah, in, in America to think that we're we're so far away and yet we're dropping bombs on this entire country and we're torturing their citizens I wanted to draw that line closer so I ended up making this feature film with the actors from yeah, my not company. a documentary no. a feature well some of it's sort of guerrilla style oh, yeah. and we did shoot one scene which is a horrifying scene of a, of a rape that happens in the back of a van with all these people cheering on the actors cheering on the people in the back and we would shoot. We shot the whole thing in traffic. And there are people who are not actors, who are cars around our van as we were heading down the main drag in Ocean City, who actually started cheering on the scene as we were filming it. And then um, we took three or four months off and trained with friends of mine who'd been in Iraq, who were soldiers who taught us everything about, you know, close quarters battle and how to dress and all of the things. And we, we took the actors from that crazy, debauched first uh, couple of weeks shoot. And then we made ourselves into soldiers and then took that whole thing to Iraq in the second half of the films in Iraq. This is the first film that I made. What did you do with the film? It got rejected from every film festival on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. And then it got into a film festival called Vegas in Las Vegas. Which just happened to be programmed by Trevor Groth, who also programmed Sundance, right. and he saw this and he thought it was crazy. And we had fifty people walk out in the first half hour of the movie. It was kind of a weird situation because they thought it was a beach movie, and they end up in a torture movie, <laughs> and it was a to- it was kind of like bullied. Full Metal Jacket was a recruitment movie. Well, it was it got compared to Full Metal Jacket yeah. by Robert Kohler. until
2: D'Onofrio blows his head off.
3: Yeah, but it was it was like the, I we got. People stormed the box office and said, yes, they did. Yes, they did. They stormed the box office and said, we're going to burn the the casino down if you show this again. This is what it was anti-American. The box office, I don't even know what they were thinking. I'm not really sure. What do you think
2: they were thinking?
3: I think that it was holding a mirror up to a very, very dark time in America, and people didn't want to accept it. It's hard to make a war movie that's not glorifying war. You know, there is a formula to war movies, even if it's the most anti-war war movie. So what I wanted to do is make a war movie with no battle scenes and, and just deal with some of the much more difficult moral questions that face soldiers.
2: What's the next film you do after that?
3: Well, gaslight
2: is the second film you make. Yeah.
3: Actually, in 2008, I was at home in Pennsylvania because I had given the next— Mylandville. T- Mylandville. I had given the next two months to Barack Obama to campaign for him in the Pennsylvania primary. I felt that strongly about him. Um, and I watched him lose the Texas and Ohio primaries in March, and I said, you know what, I'm giving the next eight weeks to Barack Obama. I'm going home. I'm going to go door to door. And when I was starting to go door to door— Everyone was talking about gas drilling.
2: So in, in a map of Pennsylvania near the southern tier of New York, uh, Milanville is where? Way, way up north toward the border?
3: Yeah, it's right up in the northeast corner. So uh, in 2008, right at this, all at the same time, uh, we got the letters in the mail... In about February, saying, don't lease your land for natural gas drilling yet because we can get you more money. And it was the Northern Wayne Property Owners Alliance that was saying, you know, join our property owners alliance and we will get you the best gas lease. And the uh, crisis was almost immediate, learning what was happening. When I was going canvassing for Obama, people wanted to talk about Obama, they wanted to talk about Hillary but they really wanted to talk about gas. What's Obama's position on gas? What is this stuff about fracking? What's going on with this fracking? So, you
2: were you conscious of and aware of uh, hydraulic fracturing before that? No. Or you had never even heard of it? Never heard of it. You would never even heard of it until 2008 when you started the canvassing and people are bringing this up they're piggybacking that onto the conversation about the election no one has heard about it no one knows anything about it but but fracking had been going on for years prior to that in other parts of the country well yes and no Not for, well they explain that because a lot of people intimate that fracking is a process that's been going on for decades distinguish if you would what they're referring to to modern fracking
3: this is a totally different type of thing from what you, you might have called fracking 50 years ago sure Um, Okay, let me go back. When you're drilling an oil or gas well, traditionally those are vertical wells. The Mm -hmm. well just goes straight down, and Mm -hmm. you're trying to tap into an anticline or a dome of natural gas or oil. It's a pool that you kind of hit, and Mm -hmm. you can suck it up. When you're talking about modern hydraulic fracturing, you're into a shale play or a tight sands formation or any of the different formations. You're talking about gas or oil that's trapped inside of a rock. And that you have to drill horizontally along that rock. This is kind of amazing engineering, that you can drill down and then torque that drill bit and sometimes mm-hmm. go out up to two miles, right? Um, and in some cases, now they're experimenting with even and now longer. Now, the
2: gas, when you say it's, it's embedded in these rocks and so forth and, and, and tight sand formations that, so that people understand this— mm-hmm does it exist like kind of like the tar sands are where it's bubbles and pockets and pieces of it and you blow it all out of there? Yeah. Or is it in the rock? Is there big pools of it inside of a rock? Or how does it work?
3: It's like uh, Dr. Sandra Steingraber describes it as a frozen champagne pop so that you have this uh, spreading out of all these little bubbles all across the rock formation. Right. But you do this by injecting high-pressure water, silica, which they call sand, but it's actually silica, which is different. Water, silica, and chemicals in a mixture into that formation at such high pressure that you fracture the rock, you cause these mini earthquakes along that either vertical or horizontal wellbore. And you're doing that with enormous pressure, pressure that rivals a cluster bomb in some cases. And that in that mixture of water is this fracking fluids. And no. no different... why are
2: those fluids necessary? Why? I mean, I mean, again, I'm not assuming you know every detail of this. I don't want to hold you up as some geophysicist. But, but when they have, they talk about the proprietary nature of their list of chemicals, and they can't tell you what's really going into the ground. Why do they need this stuff to blow through the rock? What, is, what does it accomplish?
3: There are 900 different chemicals that we've identified. Many of them are proprietary, and we don't know enough about them. But the, the ones that we do know a lot about are, are carcinogenic. They're neurotoxins. They're endocrine disruptors. They're very bad. Bad for people, sure. at different stages of the process, you need to have that liquid be at different viscosities. So to carry the sand down, the sand is propping open those cracks, if you will. Um, that the sand is doing the work. The sand is getting in there so that it opens up these cracks. Because when the pressure is on, these fissures are open. But when the minute they turn off those frac pumps, a lot of it collapses back down, and all that material right. is trapped inside the rock. So the sand is hold- sand is a prop, and it holds open the cracks. But if you notice, if you go to the beach, water doesn't carry sand. The water won't bring it down, so you have to uh, thicken that water. Mm with a viscosifier, and that's one kind of chemical. Mm. So you have a chemical mixture there, and then, the minute you do the frac, you want that condition to be very, very smooth and slippery and have no friction at all, so you insert another chemical and presto change so this whole mixture becomes like, you know, the, um, uh, the, it was just, this was described to me as like the jet engine valves on a jet engine. You have to have that be very, very lubricated in order for your, you know, planes to keep flying. So they have very intense lubricants and liquefiers that are down in there. Mm-hmm. Plus you have biocides. You have Down in the ground, what's called anaerobic bacteria. And anaerobic bacteria exists without oxygen. It does. In some cases, has never ever been to the surface. You don't know what mm-hmm. it's going to do to mm-hmm. you. It's also going to corrode your pipes. And if you're drilling a five to ten million dollar well, you certainly don't want it to rust. So,
2: as an anti-corrosive device alone,
3: there, they have to kill every living thing down there. There are corrosion inhibitors. Those are the biocides. There's crosslinkers. There are all these different chemicals that change the viscosity of the mixture as you're going down. So they're not taking any chances when they go down there. Of course not. And you know Halliburton has said, "Oh, we're developing <laughs> non-toxic." Fracking fluids. Well, they're not there yet. <laughs> Chesapeake, the, the largest natural gas company or the second largest natural gas company in America has said, has said it very honestly, there's no such thing as non-toxic fracking fluids. And the reason why is if you're spending $10 million on one hole, and that hole is eight inches wide, you don't want it to get gummed up. Their priorities are not about protecting groundwater or, or keeping this situation non-toxic. That it couldn't be further from their priorities. Their priority is to get the gas out of the ground and make their money.
2: Now, you're going door to door in 2008 with Obama, and you come to people's houses, and they are some of them, to whatever degree, are introducing you to the to the uh, the natural gas issue uh, while you're campaigning for Obama. When you get bitten by this, so I want you to talk about the moment you decided this was something you were going to get engaged with. Mm-hmm. And then also talk about the moment when you came across, because because in my mind, I see Josh Fox going door to door, even before maybe he's even decided to make a film. And people are saying, oh, yes, let me show you the cisterns of water I've got to have. And oh, yes, methane does come out of my sink. And then I'm waiting for the next guy to tell you, see, do you get the fuck off my property. I'm going to blow your head off because I want natural gas. Like, Did you
3: confront both all of a sudden? No. Oh, that didn't happen early on. In my area, there was no drilling. So when I'm going door to door, there was no drilling. There was just leasing happening. You know, we received those offers. And I wanted to know, what was this? Because the gas industry comes and they basically just say, hey, it's no big deal. It's just free money. It's a fire hydrant in the middle of your field. We probably mm. won't even dr- drill. Won't you won't even know we're there. Exactly right. We'll, you'll, you'll, never, check. you'll never know we're here and it's just free money to call mailbox money. And then, neighbors of mine had looked into it and they said, but this is called hydraulic fracturing and there are all these chemicals involved. And look at these pictures of land scarring in Wyoming. And I had fallen in love with Wyoming when I was 22 years old. I took, I took off across the country when the Knicks lost the championship in 1994 and I never looked back. And, um, so in, anyways, I was right there with you. This, this whole film is John <laughs> Stark's fault. I just found this incredible magical state of Wyoming. The Grand Tetons, the Bighorn Mountains, the Flaming Gorge, the, um, the the, the incredible planes that look like lunar or Martian surfaces. And I just spent all my time in in in, in Wyoming camping out and doing—just uh, falling in love with the landscape. And I saw these pictures of Wyoming just destroyed, despoiled, gas wells everywhere. So this was—from who? From people in the Mylondville my area
2: who started to do some investigatory
3: work? They were just my neighbors. One of my neighbors was a glass artist. She made these little glass sculptures. And she had happened to have a, a biochemical degree from uh, Columbia University— And so she had been out there. She wouldn't find that about
2: fracking. She
3: did all the research.
2: Ipso facto, you're on the internet looking at pictures of Wyoming.
3: But I don't know these people. No, they had there was a presentation. Right. She did a small presentation. Oh. Thought it was going to be about 12 folks, you know, 12 people hanging out. It was 400 people. I'd never seen as many people in one place in Upper Delaware. But I watched her presentation. Her name is Barbara Arundel, and she was totally didn't know how to use the microphone. She would be, you know, well, frackings chemicals are. <laughs> so I just thought, oh my God, this person needs help. Needs a little media help, you know. So I right. said, all right, well, she I'll make a director. A, I just thought I'd make a five-minute video for her right. of her presentation, and I wanted to find out. Well, what's who's really telling the truth here? Is this the gas industry, or is this this person, Barbara Arundel? I've never met before in my both. life, or, or or neither, or neither. Yeah, I just wanted uh, to get to the bottom of this. Uh, uh, but I realized I was not sleeping. I couldn't sleep. I was completely terrified because when you when you live in the woods, when, when it's that important, when you have a stream you, and you, you, know, you travel the world, you see how fragile these systems are. Were you terrified or were you angry? I was, or both? I was terrified. At first, what I did was friends of mine said, go to Dimmock, go to PA. It's only 60 miles away. And I had started to interview people thinking, all right, maybe I'll make a documentary. I've never made one in my had life. Had you been shooting? I shot with Barbara. I got her presentation. She did a five-hour interview. Did you shoot in Dimmick? I did. I so went, you went to Dimmick first? That's where I went first. And when I arrived there... That's when I was changed. How? Um, There were Halliburton trucks swarming all over the landscape. People were reporting their children were getting sick. They were under siege. They were under siege, and they were completely terrified. Um, and they had sold leases. Now
2: again, people in the Milanville area had been leasing, but there wasn't as much fracking. Now you're seeing another evolution. You go to 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 Dimick, and this is now they're, they're further down the road.
3: We had joined this Northern Wayne Property Owners Alliance. We were. My father was very interested, obviously, in the money. It was a lot of money. Um, Even just for 20 acres, it was in the neighborhood of $100,000 just for signing and then royalties. There was, you know, we're not rich people. There was a temptation. There's a lot of gas down there. So I I went to Dimmick and said, maybe it's not going to be so bad. But when I got there, I arrived, and right on the corner of this place called Carter Road, Norma Fiorentino, she lived in a trailer. Her water well spontaneously combusted on New Year's Day. Just blew up. Everybody was at, I guess, church or a hangover party or whatever, she came home, and the concrete casing from her well was all over the front yard. It was everywhere. It was like six-inch concrete casing. And then everybody started to talk. Oh, do you notice something funny going on with your water? Oh, yeah, my my washing machine stopped up. The water turned black. Oh, my driveway is bubbling. And then people discovered that they could light their water on fire um, and that something drastically had gone wrong. And all of a sudden, they said, don't drink the water anymore. Now, did
2: all of these people, Now, this, this is important because this is, to me, this is among the biggest problems. And that is, something like this happens. You know, your, your well blows up while you're at church. And where do you go?
3: Who do you turn to? Well, the first thing they did was talk to their neighbors to see if they were all, you know, having the same problems along this one road. And they were. Different kinds of problems, mm-hmm. but similarly with their water. I think they, they called the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection 1st mm-hmm. And their first complaints were that D.E.P. and Cabot Oil & Gas, the drilling company, would show up arm in arm, basically, right. and so, walk so, in the so door. Cabot,
2: so Cabot, for those people that haven't seen the original Gasland, let alone the sequel, Cabot is the company that was the major player in the northern Pennsylvania In community. that area, and yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. So, so they would complain, and when D.E.P. came from PA, they came with Cabot
3: reps. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Th- they would come together. And they would say, oh, your water's fine, and then they would go and get them a glass of water to drink. So, all right, well, if you think this is fine for my mother to drink, then you go ahead and drink it, and they wouldn't drink it. And then, you know, these f- folks— in- I mean, I don't know how much experience you have in central Pennsylvania or upstate New York. It's not a particularly garrulous type of a place. You know, my, my mother lives in Syracuse. There's a, there's a quieter, less... It's, simpler. It's not like in New York where people just talk, 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 talk. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's simpler, but I would say it's it's less talky. So when people are coming forward and talking it's to me... It's less paranoid. <laughs> it's just a different style when people are coming forward and talking to me, you know they're taking a risk. They're doing something out of their comfort zone. Right. There was this sense that they didn't know what to do, but that normal life had completely been overthrown. And I remember one day I had gotten with Pat Farnelli and she had this jar of of weird yellowish-brownish liquid. She said, Take this. I said, well, what is it? She goes, well, just take it. Um, um, And she could never keep a secret. This Pat Fornelli, that's what she's she's, she's amazing. She said, well, some people, uh, they were working on the rig site, and they told them to dump this. This is the produced water. It's the frack water. They told them to dump it in their own stream. And these kids are from here, and they wouldn't dump it in their own stream. So they took samples of it and quit and walked off the job. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. Where are these workers? She said, "Down down the road. So I went, and I, and I knocked on the door, and a guy who was about 17 years old opened the door, and he had chemical burns all over his face and hands, and he was bare Do you have chested. your camera with you? No, because I don't, I don't pop in the door with a camera. I think it's rude. Albert Mazels, many years later, confirmed this with me. Albert Mazels is a great documentarian. He said, look, the whole process is a friendship. You get to know, and then everyone else gets to know. I believe in... And you can get the story and still be respectful of people and have decency for people and and understand them. And I would much rather make a connection based on I'm a human being and you're a human being, even if that means the gas industry is going to turn me down again and again and again and again. These were people who were, in my mind, just had done a valorous act. I wasn't going to pop up at their door with a camera. I knocked on the door and I saw his, and he didn't know obviously who I was. He thought, I I guess he thought I was somebody else because he came to the door with his shirt off. He had red burns all over his chest and on his face. And I said, oh, um, you know, I'm, I'm Josh. I'm making a film. Can we do an interview? And he said, all right, Tomorrow. So I went, and then the next day he didn't show up. And I'm sitting there parked across the street calling the phone, calling the house, calling the house. And he had to check in with somebody? No, he just chickened out. Understandably, he was getting death threats. He was getting threats to get beaten up by other guys on the rig and all this. Uh But his grandmother answered the phone, and that's where this starts. You hear the phone call in Gasland, this weird voice saying, they're afraid for their lives, and this guy handing me this jar of, strange contaminated waters to get this tested at that moment my life completely changed right this voice on the phone was so full of terror and anxiety and worry and no nonsense no bs we are afraid for our lives because these kids wouldn't dump toxic waste in their own streams And to me, that got me, because I live right next door to, right down the, uh, the stream runs right through my property. Mm -hmm. And I thought, of course they wouldn't do it. But what's happening all over Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. right now? And this piqued my interest, and I realized that this drilling was going on in 34 states. Mm -hmm. And then I had to set aside everything else I was doing at that moment and go out on the road and try to, try to, was this going to happen, you know, do a comparative study? Did all companies do this? Was all fracking like this? Was, Was this happening in every state like this? Also, as I said... I fell in love with Wyoming when I was uh, 22 years old, and I wanted to get out there and see if it was still there that way.
2: Did people from Cabot, I would assume, where there's so much at stake? One thing that Gasland has proven is that, uh, that someone like you, you particularly, or someone who has your combination of skills and gets incredibly lucky, by the way, because these films don't always take off. Not everybody is uh, doing Inconvenient Truth. Not everybody is Davis Guggenheim or you. Did they ever come to you and say, Josh, come on, let's sit
3: down and talk? Did they ever try to seduce you? Exactly the opposite. I called up the rep, the the press rep for Cabot, and I said, well, what's happening to all these people's groundwater? And he goes, I have a book on my desk right now from 1937 that shows that there is methane in groundwater in this part of Pennsylvania dating back that far. And I just said, well, like, really? Mm -hmm. Is that really what you're saying? was there? Well, there are trace levels of methane in groundwater at very small quantities, but rarely to the point to which your well explodes spontaneously. I mean, I don't think that— Does the book
2: have any footnotes about exploding wells? Well, this (laughs) was— I don't know. Help me out here, Mr. Cabot.
3: But it was really like hitting a wall, and this was the beginning of my education. That they were going to do anything possible, to whatever take you down. to to take not me because I was nobody at that point. I was just a guy with a camera in the back. Well, hood. eventually you, yeah, to deny the truth of what was going on to these people. For Josh Fox, his education about what he calls the truth
2: has only deepened. More recently, he's taken his camera beyond his hometown.
3: Coming up, Josh remembers visiting the BP oil spill. Just seeing this entire ocean in, in, in these streaks of oil and feeling like a piece of me fell out of the airplane. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
4: Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint.
2: It was still two years before the BP spill. Josh Fox was canvassing door-to-door in Pennsylvania for then-Senator Obama when he began hearing more and more about fracking. Before he could even think about making the documentary Gasland, he had a lot of science to learn.
3: You have to be a fast study. (laughs) And, you know, this is all it is. But I will say this, no one was reporting on this at okay. that level. There was no Josh Fox in Wyoming? Who else was out there? Deb Anderson, okay. a Where? great filmmaker in New Mexico. Okay. She made a film called Split Estate. It really focused on issues of the Mountain West, though. There was no one who was making a film about this invasion of the Northeast, of this huge... So what uh, was happening in the New Mexico area was a lot smaller. Same, th- yeah. Well, was same not, thing. Yeah. Same thing, but less media attention. I okay. mean, if you're d- destroying the yeah. Rocky Mountains and, and, right. and the deserts of New Mexico, yeah. and there's one house per square mile yeah. in some of those places. Yeah. And CNN doesn't, doesn't isn't yeah. down the street drinking s- the s- water from s- that s- area. Santa
2: Vegas ain't showing up with a rep. Yeah, exactly.
3: I hear you. exactly. Got it. So there were people investigating this. Amy Mall at NRDC was reporting on it. Abram Lustgarten in ProPublica was starting to report on Fantastic. it. Laura Legere at Grant Times. So Tribune. there were kindred spirits out there. There were people who were doing this Got absolutely it. It. and certainly. Gasland was caught up in a wave of consciousness that was happening about fracking across the Northeast. So
2: as you move through your endemic and you see that Cabot, it's it's a whole other thing going on there— and when do you decide you're going to make a movie? When, do you, when, when does the movie Gasland become real? And is it, And again, I'm not trying to be glib, but I'm always fascinated by film finance, especially about these kinds
3: of advocacy things or mm-hmm. these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. Is it another phone call to Michael Stipe? Where no. does the money come from? No, there was no money, really. I mean, it was really about three or $4,000 for the first cross-country road trip, and I had my own cameras. And I was lucky enough to have uh, Matt Sanchez, who's the editor and cinematographer, who had a little bit better camera than mine. And he said, here, just take this one on the road with you. You know, I don't like... Raising money, I don't like the idea of it. I've it's, never been. I just made a
2: movie about that, and really, I'm
3: scrappy ahead. like that. I just want mm-hmm. to get in the driver's seat and go, whether that's a driver's seat in a theater rehearsal hall or actually the driver's seat, as it wasn't with Gasland. And I, you know, I love sleeping in the back of my car on the roadside in New Mexico. You're I, kind that's, of weird, aren't you? I, I'm not weird. That's not weird. That's America. That's the way we should be. Well, if you go out and listen, okay. let me tell you something. I this played a really country, rich guy on TV for six and a half years. Some kind of stuff. That, that guy was weird. He was, yeah. That guy was weird. My, that guy, that was guy not, thinks you're weird. Everybody loves that guy. No, no. Everybody loves Sleeping that guy. Sleeping in a car is weird. No, it's but. not. It's fantastic. I wouldn't do it in the Northeast, but if you're out there in the Rocky Mountain West, Albuquerque, New Mexico is in this bowl. And when you come down out of those mountains on I forty in the middle of the night, this warm air just starts rushing at you, and you you descend down the, for forty five minutes. You're just on a down, and anywhere along that road, Does that San Grecito? Just mountains? pull off. I don't know. Okay, I could tell you if I was looking at the yeah, map. Right, um, but you haven't but studied the geography the of that area. Feeling here. of it. I don't know, there's something fundamental linked in my mind between, you know, being in the backyard, being in the stream in PA, being out there in those Rocky Mountain landscapes. So the
2: guy playing the banjo is more who you are than Mike Wallace.
3: Yeah, for sure.
2: Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah. I I have friends of mine who don't criticize the advocacy of the film. They don't even really criticize the filmmaking itself. But one friend of mine said, Josh Fox, the filmmaker, is very fond of Josh Fox, the performer. Really? Was it your goal to be in the film
3: and playing your banjo and like I didn't like being was in it. that your goal no so I you, didn't like being in it at how did first. that change well I made the first five minutes or ten minutes and I did the voiceover myself just to explain stuff for people uh-huh. who am I going to call you I didn't know you you know I didn't know Deborah Winger you know, I Michael didn't Stein. know Morgan Freeman uh-huh. well what oh, anyway, I'm saying anyway. is this that I did it because it was I was working on it late at night, and friends of mine were like, "Hey, that's pretty good." But when we first started cutting the footage, we cut ones that had me in them, and we cut ones that had n- none of me, and it was just a more traditional kind of mashup documentary. And we screened those both. We would screen both parts, it. we would screen in four different segments. And the ones that I was in, people liked better. Better, people laughed. It was more human. It was more alive. And people, my friends were saying, "You have to be in this." So I said. Okay, but I'm going to be But in a, also a,
2: you being a resident and a native of the area, so It's speaking. your
3: story. Right. That's Got what it. they said. Got it's it. your story. It. You know, a lot of the the voiceovers will be recorded at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm at home alone, and I'm thinking about the memories of being in these places. And this is, you know, this was the best couch that I slept on in, in America, you know. <laughs> um, and that's that informs the situation. It makes it human, and it makes it alive for me, and, I get, and I'm able to be interested in in working on it as a human story. When is the film finished? And by that, I mean, not released but. When, when do you lock that picture and you say I'm done the movie's done what year uh, the day before the Sundance Film Festival and when
2: did you okay so that literally was literally the, the so day that before the
3: we finished it we, we and you applied festival, to Sundance right? yes we applied to Sundance with a rough cut and to our Total joy and astonishment. We we got in, yep. and then we had eight weeks to finish. You know, you're in now. You've got to finish we're by your premiere card, date. So now you got to finish. What and happened? We we cut another half an hour out of right. it. We added a whole a third act to it, and then um, we we're, we worked on it until the last. And you were day. In Sundance, yeah, we're, and you
2: went to Sundance, there. yeah. And how was that for
3: you? I was totally nauseous. I had elevation sickness. Um, there were publicists Jesus Christ. talking.
2: <laughs> Talking to you, your movie was eventually nominated for an Academy Award, yep. correct? Okay. Very Aside excited. from your elevation sickness, describe as a, as a filmmaker, uh-huh. not as a person with a okay. bad, with a weak stomach. All right. What happened with At Sundance?
3: Um, well, I met the most incredible filmmakers and people. I I I, pr- I started to appreciate who documentarians were. Oh. They knew how to tell a story. They cared about the world. They were not motivated by Igor being in a film. They were motivated by fixing some huge problem. And they problem. liked your film. And they, li- and they accepted me. That must have been great. That was amazing. That's exhilarating. That was totally exhilarating. You're and there. audiences loved the film. We went to Sundance thinking, okay, it's this mountain to climb. We brought 10 people, and we would go to these cocktail parties where <laughs> we were trying to explain hydraulic fracturing to people in a Hollywood cocktail party, Sundance yes. cocktail party. People whose eyes would just glaze over. Yeah. You know, it's a horizontal well-bore, and there are these chemicals, and they inject in the, yeah. the ground. People are like, next, we're, you know. Yeah. And then by the end of the festival, we, we started overhearing people on the little Sundance bus going around the mountain. Uh them explaining hydraulic fracturing yeah, to each and other, and they go sideways
2: into the rocks. Yeah. You're not going to believe this, <laughs> Jerry. <laughs>
3: exactly. Could we
2: get Brad Pitt to play Fox? <laughs> exactly. They look less than like. <laughs> alike. I don't care.
3: So we knew something had happened, and HBO picked up the film, and, and I thought this is amazing. This is going to go into 40 million homes around America. And being having been a theater director and producer my whole life, the, th- the thought that I didn't have to sell tickets. Mm-hmm. Which is always very hard mm-hmm. to get people to leave the house and sit down on this particular HBO day. HBO was and time. another great notch in your it belt in the documentary un- world. Unbelievable that we were going to do that. It's a great one-two punch: yeah. Sundance, HBO. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that we were touring um, to the grassroots. I toured to two hundred. There was a chance to sleep in more cars. Well, that part of it. But also, I just felt like I, I wanted. There were once you start, there's a lot of places to go. Sure. You know? So about 250 cities. Um, Good God! Yeah, it took a year and a half. Good God! It was crazy. But, you know, um, I want to win. I want to win. I don't want to see this happen. The debate. I want to win, period. It's not about winning a debate. What is winning? What to you is winning? Well, I think it's going to take a while, but I think we have to get off of fossil fuels. Right. And what the fracking is, is it represents another 50 years of being addicted to fossil fuels. Fracking for gas and fracking for oil is the new frontier for the oil companies. What this means is they can get at all this oil and gas that they couldn't get at before. Never mind that it's completely toxifying the landscape. Never mind that it's going to destroy all these incredible these areas that we love. Do well, you if, know I, the oil and gas industry has leased more land <clears throat> than the total land mass of California and Florida combined? No, I don't doubt that. These companies don't like to be told no. Right. And we've decided that what's appropriate to do in America is this uh developing world exploitation developing world exploitation that's what model what we've
2: been doing everybody else now we're saying to ourselves let's just do it in Pennsylvania
3: yeah look there's always been an area that the fossil fuel industry whether it was coal or oil or gas always been a population of people that was considered expendable in the face of oil and gas and in, in West Virginia talk to the people their history of coal yeah. it's like how did our coal get in underneath their mountains yeah. and so what we've done here with fracking and, and talking about Shale plays in 34 states, more land leased than the entire land area of California and Florida combined. We've just enlarged the area of people who are now considered expendable. The people who are now considered expendable are people who drink water in New York City because they wanted to drill in the New York City watershed. It's three-quarters of Pennsylvania. It's half of Ohio. Are they drilling in the New York City watershed? They are not. New Yorkers— Stopped the largest industry in in the history of industry and so far have persuaded Governor Andrew Cuomo to take a step back off of the cliff and not allow this fracking to happen. You think that Cuomo is going to stay off the cliff? The more New Yorkers learn about fracking, the less they like fracking. Mm-hmm. If you were a politician, if you are going to open the state up to the largest fossil fuel extraction in the history of the state, your initials are going to be on those chemicals, and they don't biodegrade. They're going to be <laughs> down there for hundred. That's <laughs> your legacy. They're going to be down there for thousands of years. No matter what else you do. And you will be known as that. If I was the governor right now, I would be jumping up and down because I actually have a chance to make history. Because if Andrew Cuomo decides, you know what, we're going to reject this proposal and we're going to move vigorously in the direction of renewable energy, do you know what a ripple effect that would have across the world? Do you know all of a sudden that Andrew Cuomo would be an international leader? I just got a report the other day that was um, just today, just before walking over here, the Energy Information Administration mapped out 41 countries that have shale. We cover this in Gasland 2, how this has spread internationally.
2: When did you know that you were going to have a Gasland 2 and Why?
3: The Gulf Spill. We premiered Gasland 1 on HBO June 21st, 2010. I was going on all this media, news shows and everything, I was always in makeup, and, and the story right before me was always the Gulf Spill. So I was had this very bizarre experience of being the guy who was always following the Gulf Spill, and I, I thought, i got to get down there, I have to film this, I have to see what's going on. And our first free weekend was right after the premiere, was July 4th weekend. So Matt, myself, and uh, another cameraman, Alex Tyson, and I went down to the Gulf, and we managed—I don't know how it happened, whether it was the 4th of July or it was because it was a Sunday. We got this sort of unprecedented clearance from FAA to fly at any altitude we wanted over the oil spill. And they had previously been restricting flights to 3,000 feet and above. And from 3,000 feet, you can't see anything. But no, why do you think you got that clearance? Well, I why? don't know the answer to that. The, actually, we were all in total shock. It was four months into the catastrophe. Right. And it was 4th of July weekend, and it was right. a Sunday day. And we just got lucky. And you'll see these pictures in Gasland 2. When you watch Gasland 2, you'll see pictures of the Gulf that you've never seen before. The whole surface for 50 miles streaked with oil. To answer your question, though, what spurred me on was it was clear that BP was running the show. The oil company, In the face of the largest catastrophe in in American history in terms of environment, the oil
2: company itself was in charge. Why do you think that happened? Why do you think Obama allowed... How does it feel to be the guy who actually his introduction to this very issue... He might not even be here now if he hadn't gone canvassing for Barack Obama. How did he feel that Barack Obama completely abandoned his
3: responsibilities to British Petroleum to police what happened in the Gulf? I was in shock. And I, that was the question, though. If this is what's happening with the largest, most visible catastrophe on the face of the earth, and they're keeping the press out, and they're keeping the media out, and we're seeing things that no one has seen on television, and we're just just because we showed up. Well, what's going to happen with fracking and why is it that that, that this is the order it's not all of a sudden it started to get rearranged in my mind i thought well is there is there something above the government is there something influencing the government to such a degree that this person this this man that i was so passionate in supporting um is has now all of a sudden turned over the office to uh, the oil companies could there not be a greater moment to uh, rally support around getting us off of fossil fuels and starting down the road to save climate change in the BP oil spill. And I was absolutely dismayed and confused and horrified and in shock. We got off that little airplane and none of us could talk for hours. We were just, we were nonverbal. I mean, having seen the gulf in the state, that you even to show it in the gas line, too, you see it only for a few moments. But having absorbed that, what's we're in that w- a plane having to wear gas masks. What's because the thing of- that
2: stands out most to you from the whole BP experience? You're down there, the people you met on the ground, the planes, the dispersants, the this, the that, the flying over. What's one thing that really stood out just to you? Just seeing
3: the gulf in that state. Just All seeing right. this entire ocean in, in, yeah. in the streaks of oil and feeling like a piece of me fell out of the airplane. At that moment, I felt like, I have to look at this other layer here. I'm only seeing the tip of the iceberg. You know, I'm seeing the ground contamination, the water contamination, the stories of the families. What's happening at the level of government? Why hasn't there been anybody helping us? Where is our government that's supposed to protect Americans from foreign uh, invaders? <laughs> right? That, that, to me, was when I wanted to make this new film. And say, because this film was, is about investigating the government and our government's reaction to this crisis. We had now all of a sudden one of the most popular environmental issues of the last however long. A brand new controversy, a huge movement sweeping across America. Where was the president? Where was the governor? Where was— Why do you,
2: you think—I well, mean, I can go all John Muron people. And I could go all Henry David Thoreau on people and I could talk about how this is just my idea of, you know, this land is your land. I mean, I can really get going on that whole thing of like, I don't know why people are not more outraged. The other day, they announced that San Onofre Nuclear Power Plant closed. And I have worked in the anti-nuclear movement, uh, Oyster Creek. I mean, I've been down in Tom's River all the time and Millstone and Indian Point, all this stuff. And San Onofre is going to close. I'd like, mm-hmm. to fix San Onofre, it was $600 million was the bill. And where is San Onofre? California. Yeah. In Southern California. I've
3: heard a lot about this because— San
2: Onofre is closing. And Congratulations. Um, when are people going to realize that you know we need to have? I don't like to use the word Manhattan Project because that bespeaks like de- destructive and war and negativity. When are they going to have the Apollo Project of renewable energy?
3: Well, I hope that San Onofre isn't replaced by a natural gas-fired power plant. But, well, that's what they're talking but about. That's what they're going to do. They're talking right? about they've got to replace so that got energy to, with which gas, which you've got to understand mm-hmm. here is that we were on the track, we, are, we have been on the track to replace this with wind and solar. We have more wind energy in North Dakota, Kansas, and Texas, just those three states, right. and just the wind right. to run everything in the United States of America, including our fleet of 300 million cars. And, and what, what we're seeing here now is, okay, here's the line here. We're going on the progress of human history. We're going, moving over towards renewable energy, and, sh- and fracking is now cutting in. Fracking and shale gas is tra- is making— the last pop-
2: gasp, I think.
3: This is what uh, they say in the film, the last ga- gasp of the fossil fuel uh, industry. However, if you look at what's happened with climate change, and anybody in New York knows this, whether Irene hits you upstate and flooded away your town or whether you watch the, the New York City subway fill up with the Atlantic Ocean after Sandy— we can't afford to do 50 more years of fossil fuels, and certainly not frack gas. No. Because frack gas, here's the, uh, the, the third big lie of the gas industry. They have said for many, many decades that gas burns cleaner than coal. So it's less CO2 into the atmosphere than coal, so it's better for power generation. Well, that's true, but it's like the witches in Macbeth. They only tell you half of what's true. Like, you've probably played Macbeth. I know you played Macbeth at the public theater. And so what what does Macbeth hear? He only really hears half of the sentence, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to be the king. He doesn't find out, you know, he's going to have to kill all his friends, his wife's going to go crazy and commit suicide, and he's going to be dead in three days. They leave that part out. So what the gas industry says, we burn cleaner than coal, (laughs) but they leave out the part where the methane leakage, field measurements are showing between 5 and 9% total methane leaking up into the sky out of these gas fields. It was estimated at Cornell between 36 and 7.9%. Anything over 2% leakage means that frac gas is worse than coal for climate change because methane leaking in the atmosphere, methane is 105 times more potent at trapping heat than carbon dioxide is. So methane in the atmosphere, <laughs> you have to... Admit 105 times more CO2. And so the fuel we're chasing
2: in order to get off of
3: ga- oil is even worse. Is worse for climate change for climate in the change. short in the 20-year time frame. And all we have left is this 20-year time frame to solve this problem.
2: Now, Gasland 2. When did you finish Gasland 2?
3: Um, uh, basically a week before it premiered at the (laughs) Tribeca Film Festival. We work up until the last minute and you know we will make Which today with modern technology you can do that like like the old days. Have you got a Gasland 3 in you? Um, You I don't think it's Gasland 3. I do think that I spent 15 years working with this international theater company about globalization. I'll probably spend the next 15 years working on issues of sustainability, or maybe 40 years. I don't know, depending on how long. I, I feel like I've struck on something that is the core of, of who I am. This is not about fracking. It's right. not about fracking. Thank you for saying that. This is Thank about you. who we are. That's the most
2: important thing No, said. this is about America. No, I love
3: that. It isn't. Yeah. How, would I, how would you work on fracking for five years? This isn't right. about fracking. Right. This is about our democracy. It's about helping people. This is about who we are as Americans, who we are as citizens of the world. This is about. This is how you serve your country. I know this is radio, but I have to pull this card out. It says "Marcellus Patriots for Land Rights: Don't tread on me," and it's the snake with the drilling rig going down through the middle of it. This is the card of somebody who's adamantly against the gas industry. His name is Craig Stevens. He's a sixth-generation landowner. It says in the back of his card, "These aren't environmentalists." It doesn't matter if you're a red person or a blue person or in a red state or a blue state. If your private property rights are being destroyed by the gas industry, you don't have to be an environmentalist. If your civil rights are being don't need taken away. a degree away, in science. If your civil it's rights right. and human rights are being destroyed by oh a God. multinational corporation is bearing down. You don't need to be an, a tree sure. hugger. Sure. This is not what this is about.
2: You can see Josh Fox's newest film, Gasland Part 2, on HBO and learn more about his upcoming tour this fall with the film on our website. As you see in his films and here in this podcast, Josh travels most places with a banjo. Let's have it. What are we going to have?
3: I think I'm going to play um, an old bar song from 1814. And I was with Pete Seeger two nights ago. Introduced Pete Seeger. And he said, yo, I know that song you're going to play. That's, that's an old bar song. It was the biggest hit of 1814. And they liked it so much the guy had to sing it twice in the bar. And then clip-clop, clip-clop, all the way up and down the East Coast, they sold the lyrics. And you know that song? It became the national anthem. If a bar song can become the national anthem... <laughs> You're always just kind of in the position of just making up America as we go along. And that's what I love about doing this. It's not about fracking. It's about making up the next version of America and letting it not be Exxon Mobil and Shell and Chevron and these people who who come to you with deceit and leave you with deceit. And crush us. And, yeah, and, and I want to see that happen. That's that, I know you say, oh, where's the outrage? But what I'm seeing out there and as we go along and we tour the film and we meet these people is this incredible outpouring actually of love and support and of, of you know, when people backs up against the wall, something comes out. And it's a remarkable to witness. So if you're not... Seeing that in your daily life, then go somewhere where we're showing gas and or they're protesting the fracking. Um, you'll find it. It's pretty remarkable. It's why I've been hanging out there so long.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
4: More info now.